Andrew Green. Great. Great. I have a I have a seven component support question. Sweet. The location of force. Uh-huh. Okay. So the way that I've heard you describe it, if I'm not mistaken, we're usually talking about so it's how the force is distributed within the system. Are we mostly looking at it in terms of where the base of support is? Or are we also thinking more globally in the body when we when we look at what the location is? And if yeah, and if so, like just could you elaborate on that a bit? Okay. Um, head or gut? Head or gut? Head or gut? Uh, you ever see that movie? That's Boy Scout, Bruce Willis, greatest actor of our time. Okay, quick story. Bruce Willis comes into his house. He finds his best friend um, with his wife, and he's very angry about that. And, he, and he, he sort of forgives his buddy, but he says, I can't let you walk away without punishment. So he goes, head or gut, which means I'm going to punch you. You get to decide whether I hit you in the head or in the gut. Okay. So if I hit you in the head, right, that's location number one. There will be a wave when I punch you in the head that goes through your system from your head. You understand? Okay. If I punch you in the gut, there is a, there is a force that will be applied and it will move in a different direction. Okay. Because of the location, because of the angle of attack, so to speak, the wave will propagate in a certain direction. Okay. If you were to throw a punch, okay, you would, you would pull uh, force from the ground upward into your fist. And as you made contact, it would reverse gears and it would go the other way. Okay. And so based on the points of contact, that's going to determine where the wave would start and then what direction it can go. Mm -hmm. Does that, does that clarify? It does. So when, but so in that description, at least the last one, it sounds mainly like we're thinking about where does location, it's where the force contacts the body. Is that so that so that's a bit that's a big part of it, but now you have to kind of look at okay, what what is my physical shape? Right. So if I was if I was making a right foot cut, okay, so I'm moving into the cut with my right foot, my foot hits the ground, and that's going to perpetuate. The, the, the vibration that comes off the ground through me, right? Okay, but it's gonna hit different spots along the way based on, on shape. So as the wave comes up and hits me in the knee, if I have a knee orientation in a certain direction, the knee could actually carry outside of my foot, which again, that's the, that's the uh, location. It's hitting the knee in a certain shape which will turn my knee in one direction or the other. In one case, I end up with an injury. In the other case, I, I, I create a wave that's going in the opposite direction that allows me to, to, to turn and come out of the cut. Right. Okay. Right. Okay, so if we're looking at, just to make sure I kind of understand the, the base of support, the distributed versus local. Uh -huh. um, so if I'm doing a squat with two legs, yep. um, then because I have two feet on the ground, I'm gonna get an automatic yielding bias of the connective tissues just because I have a wider base of supports and I don't need to orient my body as much compared 
to a single leg squat where I would have to produce a pretty strong orientation towards that leg um, because I only have one base of support. Or is that too simplified? Um, you, so a, a bilateral bilateral support activity will have less rotation in it for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, right? If you're bilateral symmetrical, is that what you mean? Yep. Yeah, yeah. It will have less rotation to, to control. Now, it doesn't mean you're actually going to turn in a single leg stance. It just means that you're going to have to increase the amount of, of muscle activity to apply force into the ground. Because again, and it, it, it's dependent on how much turn that you want under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. I, I guess like I'm working on the terminology piece of it because it distributed versus local. So obviously there's like a force magnitude effect. Like if I'm using the same body and I'm doing the bilateral versus the single leg, um, yeah. I'm using, I'm squatting roughly double the weight on my single leg, right? Um, but if it were weight equated somehow, it's like, how would I describe the difference in the overcoming and yielding behaviors um, with, a sing with a single leg versus a double leg? Um, it would be mostly, a, a, so again, magnitude and rate. So, so higher magnitude is going to increase the degree of stiffness of, of connective tissues because the load would be instantaneous under those right. So in both cases, you could have a magnitude that would, that would promote a stiffness, right? An overcoming action of the connective tissues. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And in both cases, I can create a yielding action depending on, again, load, position, um, velocity that I'm moving. So again, you have an interaction that, that takes into consideration many of those elements of force production. If, if I'm working on uh, like sprint acceleration, let's say, um, and I do a forward sled push, and then I run right afterwards, I can immediately tell that my acceleration is much higher because the connective tissues have taken on a certain, no? Okay, okay, because the connective tissues have taken on a certain quality. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I, and, and I've been able to do certain activities like um, cable chops where I'm looking to get hip internal rotation on a certain side uh -huh. and then be able to successfully pair that with, a, um, with something where I need more dynamic internal rotation. I'm not just holding the chop. Yeah. And so there's this effect of duration on the connective tissue behavior. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so that's a context that I've been able to use is where it's like, I, I use duration holding uh -huh. like internal rotation to then do a dynamic behavior that right. requires that, I guess what, yeah, what I don't understand maybe so much is understanding location and context of how I might, um, use that variable to influence outcomes besides box squats. I use those all the time, but maybe mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about it too theoretically and not. Well, I don't mind theoretical, you know, thought that that's yeah. very useful. Um, you, you, you're going to, when you're, when you're in an upright atmosphere, right? Everything's working together. You understand that, right? Right. Okay. Your, your points of contact are going to assure, though, that you're able to access certain aspects of, of movement, right? So if you were to do a cable chop with the weight on the outside edge of your foot, okay? Yeah. All right. Less relative motion there. 
You understand that? Yeah. Okay. You put your medial contacts down. Okay. And you're going to be able to capture more relative motion. Okay. So you do that first. That's what you're saying. Correct. Yep. Okay. So you're training the system to access certain aspects that will allow you rel relative movement. And then you're going to try to transfer that concept into another activity that is adding to the, the force production, right? So more velocity, for instance, yeah. more force. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have no issues with that whatsoever. I think it's a great strategy. Doesn't always work, but it does work. Okay. Now, the reason I made, when I made my, my little smirk, when you okay. said, when you said you got faster after this, the sled pushes. More acceleration. Yeah. You got to be careful there because sometimes it's just perceptual. Hmm. Okay. It seems like you're faster, but you're not really fast. Okay. 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 Um, but, but as far as conceptually, um, you're, you're promoting um, positions that are similar, right? That may allow you to transfer the access to relative motion to another activity. Right. Which, which again, I'm fine with, but you do have to understand that when there's, when there's a, when there's another element of force, such as magnitude or velocity that you're adding, you are affecting the differences in connective tissues. Okay. Right. Because right. the rate, because you, you, you've altered rate of loading. That's a biggie, right? You've, yep. you've altered the magnitude and, and then you've also uh, in, altered the, the frequency of loading, right? Definitely. You have to, but you have to take all of those things into consideration. You say, oh, this is the same. Well, it's not the same, but it's similar. Right. Right. So your, right. So your body position when you're doing your sled push is very similar to an accelerated position, but, but the magnitude and the duration are a little bit different. Locations may be very, very similar. And so then it becomes very, very useful. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So um, look up the concept of dynamic correspondence. Okay. And this, this, is, this is from way back before you were born. Um, and and, and what, it, what it does, it's kind of talking about this. It's, it's looking at, at, so here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to necessarily try to duplicate an activity in another environment because then it doesn't really work. But but there are certain similarities. So like there's there's positions where you would apply um, higher magnitude of force. There's positions where the location would be the same. There are positions where the duration would be the same. So each each time you match up some of those elements, then there is something that is useful that will transfer from one activity to another. Just because it looks the same doesn't guarantee that it's going to work. Okay. Right. I would, yeah. Okay. I would guess that. And that's, that's really helpful on where to look. Yeah. Because so think about this. So let's just say that you're, you're doing your sled pushes and you're doing your accelerations is the amount of time that your foot is on the ground with your sled pushes the same as it is when you're accelerating without resistance. No. no. So it might slow you down. It might yeah. slow you down, but your perception is, is that it's faster because right. it feels lighter, right? It feels lighter. So you go, wow, I'm really fast after I push the heavy sled. No, your time actually is a little bit slower. Let me give you another for instance. Um, do you play baseball? Uh, I have in the past. Okay. Did you organize baseball? No. No. Okay. You ever see a guy on the on-deck circle? They put the donut on the bat to make the bat heavier so they swing it. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Mm -hmm. So you put the donut on the bat, you swing the bat a bunch of times, 
bat feels heavy. You take the donut off, you swing your bat, go, wow, I'm swinging really, really fast. Actually, there's research that shows that you don't swing fast, but you actually swing slower under many circumstances. Huh. It's a perception. It's a perception that you're actually faster because the weight actually, so your, your behavior with the extra magnitude change the stiffness of the connective tissues, right? So, so you're, you're sort of setting the, the muscle output and the connective tissues at the wrong level to allow your highest velocity to occur. It's purely perceptual, okay? Yeah, so like your golfers with weighted clubs. Yep, yep, yep. So um, there used to be like a, he a heavy club that they used to sell back when I used to work with golfers that weighed two pounds, okay? <laughs> So that doesn't sound like a lot of weight, but if your driver is 15 ounces, less than a pound, okay? And you double the weight, you've just changed the activity. Like it's no longer the same swing that you had at the lighter weight. Right. You can, you can disturb the load plus or minus about 20% without changing the motor activity to a significant degree. So let me give you another example. Uh, baseball players, they throw weighted balls or lighter balls. So a, a official baseball is five ounces. And so um, if you add 20% to that, that's a six ounce ball, okay? That's pretty useful because it doesn't disturb the, the, uh, the normal behavior of throwing too much. I could throw a four ounce ball, that doesn't disturb it too much. But if I threw a, one that was say seven ounces, now that's a 40% increase. And now I've actually disturbed the output and it changes it significantly. Okay, so, so the reason that that might disturb the output is because now we're not getting as full of an excursion of, yeah, okay, got it. Change the muscle activity. I change the tuning of the connective tissues. I, change, right. I alter the access to space. I mean, the whole right. thing starts to change too much. That but the perception sense. is, the perception is, is that I'm faster because the, the, the sensory input feels different. Right, because I might be faster for like a split second. Or not at all. Or not at all, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff, uh, very helpful. Okay. If you're cool with it, I would like to shift gears to, to something else that I've heard you speak on before. And it's uh, this idea of, I think people find this really interesting. I've heard you say that a lot of traditional stretches, like static stretches, mm -hmm. are actually concentrically orienting some muscles. Maybe not all the time, but frequently we see all that time. all the time. Okay. And oh, then can you expand upon that? Like the, 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 the time I heard you say it was like a door frame pec stretch and how that's actually yeah. the inverse. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a pretty hot blonde in that video, if I recall correctly. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. So let me, let me just make a statement and then it'll become very, very clear. Eccentrically oriented muscle has no tension on it. Mm. Concentrically oriented muscle does. Okay. If I have a compressive strategy that is a concentrically oriented muscle. Okay. So if I was to try to stretch an eccentrically oriented muscle, I wouldn't feel anything until I got to the very end and then the connective tissues would kick in, but I would be demonstrating a full excursion of what would be traditional joint range of motion. So if I have limited joint range of motion and I am trying to apply pressure to a muscle to make it longer, good luck with that. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. 
you can't you you're and and here's what we know and this is in the like this is this is this is ubiquitous in the the stretching literature is there's no change in the stiffness of a muscle mm -hmm. after you perform a static stretch okay and so what you're getting is you're getting a connective tissue based yielding action in the connective tissues which is temporary which is why if you stretch once and you make any measurable gains which good luck with that you're not going to make much okay um you, you, you make a miserable gain, it doesn't stick. You have to do it again. You have to do it again. It's, it's the people that come in and say, oh, I always have to stretch my hip flexors. Oh, I always have to stretch my pecs. Well, the reason that you have to stretch them is because they're concentrically oriented and they're not changing, okay? You're creating a yielding action. But this also just like, when we talk about performance, this also describes why you see the power decrement that's associated with static stretching because you're creating a yielding action in the connective tissues, which is what I need to store and release energy. But if I get a yielding action, so I hold that long enough where I get the elongation of connective tissues, I don't get the overcoming action that follows, which is actually the release of energy. So you see the power decrement. Now, what happens after a period of time or after a dynamic warmup? You regain the power element of it because you just recaptured the, the connective tissue behavior that you used with the static stretch in the first place. Now, does that mean that static stretching is useless? Absolutely not. It just means that what you think it's for, it's not for, okay? So static stretching is specifically to improve the yielding capabilities of connective tissues and to increase your pain tolerance. What you may gain from that is what's called a flexibility reserve. So if I was to take you and I was to yank you into a stretched position, you may have a flexibility reserve that can protect you because you have captured the yielding capabilities of those connective tissues. Okay. Yeah. But is it, and again, this is, it, it, it's not hiding. It's not hiding anywhere. Um, it's in the literature. You can see all this. You just have to put the pieces together and, and actually see it for what it is. We should just blast that all over the internet because that's just... well, you know okay but see and then then people will say but but look at all the right. range of motion that i gained right. it's like okay yeah. you think you're doing you think that you're performing a stretch for a muscle okay guess guess who created the concept of muscles humans did that it's like yes we're made of stuff but we're the ones that gave it a name and so you say well i'm stretching a quadriceps i'm stretching a calf i'm stretching a hamstring i'm stretching a pec the reality is is that you're promoting a shape change that may actually be favorable in the end, but the actual muscle that you're yanking on is not where you're going to make the change. You're going to make the change in some other way, shape, shape or form. And I'm, I'm, I'm making a pun there, shape or form. You're going to make a shape change that's going to allow you to access ranges of motion. What you should notice, though, is that as you achieve that range of motion, there will be no sensation of stretching that would be an eccentrically oriented muscle. And then you actually made the appropriate shape change. You actually expanded the muscle. You reduced the internal pressure in that muscle itself, allowed it to expand and allowed you to access that range of motion with no tension at all. Which is why when you do make a favorable shape change, that's why the, the, the motion feels easy and effortless, okay? If you're yanking and pulling on things and you're expecting that muscle to change, good luck, it's not gonna happen. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, something that, uh, you mentioned just earlier on the call in terms of like, um, working the, uh, the opposite from when somebody like, when you see how they got there, you're just going in the opposite direction to get them back. Give me, give me a, for instance. So, um, 
you know how we talk about um you know like the, the compression sequence so once you uh -huh. see somebody say like reach end game you, you kind of just reverse the sequence to oh okay reverse engineering yeah yeah so so I, I was wondering about that in the in the sense of like uh for example maybe like a front squat or, or going overhead you know where you know we have these ranges of shoulder flexion going from er to ir to er again and you know so if somebody is lacking you know we, we talked about um the front squat last time so if somebody has some compensatory strategies in the in the rack position should i be working on or you know more from the top down trying to restore expansion from the top down relative motion from the top down or should i should i be thinking more from the bottom up you know um because okay. again because so i'm trying to piece that together with you know what i know about shoulder flexion and then also just from a gross understanding of posterior and anterior compression right. so so the 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 need for space is different between a front squat and an overhead press you, and i know i know you understand that i just wanted to say it out loud right um so again you have to consider the spaces that create the greatest interference under the circumstances Right. So if I have somebody that has a, a posterior lower compressor strategy that's interfering with the ability to access arm elevation to shoulder level. OK, I can't do either press or front squat without right. compensatory strategies. Right. So it behooved me to access that space first because it becomes the first level of interference when I'm trying to move through, move my arm through space. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So if I didn't have that compressive strategy, then I shouldn't have trouble getting my arm into that space. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. At least the initial, initial elevation, then I have to worry about obviously sternal compressive strategies. That's going to interfere with that potentially end range position for like a front squat. Mm -hmm. So again, it's like, where do I need to put the arm in space? That's going to tell me where I need to, to address all of those compensatory strategies, but it's going to be in a sequence from the bottom up. Cause that's that if you're upright, we're doing upright activities, your lungs are going to fill from the bottom up. Right. Right. So that, that's what I was thinking is, you know, you're, you're, you're filling up from the bottom up. So your compressive strategies are, or compensatory strategies are moving this way. So yeah, they're just they're thinking, like, they use your, use your arm as sort of like the barometer. It's like, okay, at, for every element of elevation, I have to move volume up. I have to have the expansive capability to access that space without, right. compensation, without compensation. Right. So, you know, so my, my, so I was, you know, I was thinking, okay, since we're compressing in this, in this way from the bottom up, then, you know, I should go after, you know, I should fill from the bottom up, but then, you know, that was conflicting with, you know, uh, the way I deal with turns, which is from, you know, from their start position and trying to bring them back home as you, as you would say. So trying to go basically this way. Do you know what okay. I mean? Yeah. Um, but, but with the understanding that you have to have the space first, mm -hmm. right. I have to have the expansive strategy first. So if I squeeze you, let's just say that I, I just smush you. I take everything away from you, right? I'm burying you in that, that middle representation. You don't have ER and you don't have a late, you don't have an early representation. Any, 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 any attempts at turning are gonna be orientation, right? Under all mm -hmm. circumstances. 
So you have to have the you have to have the expansive capability first to create the the turn. Otherwise, you're going to compress even harder, like a twist. You're really twisting the towel, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to have the expansive capabilities first, and that's going to be that's going to be acquired in most cases. Again, it's going to be more of a bottom-up representation. This is that's how you're going to capture those relative motions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hmm. All right. I guess I'll think about that a little bit more. Well, create a con, create a more specific context. Mm -hmm. Like, 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 ask the question in in a in a, in a problem. Um, format. It's like, I have a lifter that has this problem and then and arrive at the solution there rather than just speaking hypothetically about something broader general, it'll help, it'll help clarify. Well, I've been, uh, so, so actually, you know, I, I have been doing that, you know, where, you know, I see an issue, maybe, uh, you know, uh, like an inability to, to get overhead or whatnot. And so I've, I've been dealing with things as that, as that kind of issue on an issue yeah. by issue basis, but yeah. I was, you know, but I was trying to kind of combine that with just like, you know, the general theoretical aspects, again, of like filling from the bottom up and then also, you know, reverse engineering to the original location. And then I was trying to just, I don't know, I'm just trying to create a better process, you know, uh -huh. a better analytical process uh, <clears throat> rather than just kind of take things, you know, I know there's experimentation involved in stuff, and yep. everyone's ending equals one, but yeah. Again, I'm trying to I'm trying to improve my process rather than just take it, you know, once you know case by case and not have any you know not going with. No, like, I, I understand that. Not going with the process. Yeah. Oh, believe me, I'm I'm all I'm all about the process, my friend. Um, but what I'm saying is, is like you can use you can use a a specific situation as a representation of the process, right? So you take somebody that, um, let me see if I can do this. Let me see if I can do this with my hands. So if, if I would be looking at somebody, um, I'm facing them. Mm -hmm. and let's just say that this is their expansion, right? Side to I'm looking at them side to side just for the sake of argument. Because if I do this, you can't see my face. And I want to, I want to, you know, make sure you can see me. Um, so uh, if, if, if this is up and they're gonna, they're gonna try to reach up overhead, right? So the initiation of the reach in the earliest phases, so with my arm at my side and I'm starting to move it up away from me, okay? The, the expansion is gonna look like that. And then as the arm passes that expansion, it's gotta expand just above that. And then the rest of it has to come back in. And so the expansion is going upward because that's where the spaces are that I need to get the arm into that space. And then as I pass that space, it goes like that and it goes back in, do you see that? So this would be like the lower rib cage. So as I initiate elevating my arm, the lower rib cage is gonna do this. And then as the arm passes that space, it's gonna come back in because I'm pushing volume upward so I can get up into that space. And then that space closes up. Now, if I get to the very end of that range, whoom, everything's smushed. And then that's how I can hold a weight overhead. So I'm squeezing everything in from the bottom up, right? So I'm creating the, the compression and then the, the compression moves its way up into that space to hold the arm up overhead, okay? So that's a bottom up representation. So if I, am, if I have every layer of compensatory strategy that you can imagine, it's like, where do I need to get the space first 
to, to start my arm up overhead, I have to get the expansion in that, in that lower aspect. And then I work my way up. So that's a bottom up representation. So there's, there's not really an absolute progression. They say, oh, if, if you're going from the ground, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. Because a lot of people just come, they're, they're capable of walking in the door, they're upright. And, and so uh, in many cases, especially in, in, a, in a fitness environment, they're not dealing with some pain related issue. They may have limitations, but they're not dealing with pain. So the decision-making is not driven like it might be from a physical therapy standpoint where the progression may be a little bit slower and in coming to stand. But the real kicker here is the ability to apply force downward. And, and to do that without a compensation requires access to internal rotation. And so depending on how you determine um, whether your client has that capability, that's entirely up to you. Some people can throw people down on a table and they understand how to measure um, on the table. I don't think it's necessary, um, first and foremost, um, it, there, but there's certain activities that, that might um, allow you to determine this. For instance, like um, watching somebody perform a, a, a step up um, would, would allow you to, to identify the excursion of a hip joint that must move through the internal rotation to be able to do, this, do so. Um, but anyway, that's, that's gonna be the number one thing that you're gonna make sure that you represent um, or is represented when you're bringing somebody to stand. Okay. Otherwise they will be using a compensatory strategy. If you know that and you understand how to manage it, then, then more power to you. I think there's a lot more options under those circumstances. Like um, that but that's, say again. I like that step up idea. Could you expand on that a little bit? Um, yeah. So, okay. So, so a step up is, is a very, very middle propulsive representation. So middle propulsion is where the greatest demonstration of internal rotation would be. So the, the shape of the pelvis will be biased towards internal rotation, the ability to access the space below the axial skeleton. So that'd be standing, okay. would be represented in that. And so to be able to perform an effective step up, one would have to be able to push through the ground and then, um, if you if we would talk about I, I don't talk about uh, straight planes and but I, but I can speak the language so if we're talking about like a traditional hip extension at zero degrees that would be representative of somebody that has enough internal rotation to to push through the ground and, and then achieve an upright stance without a compensation okay um, and so a step up is an easy way to do that right so that that just requires enough enough. Um, knowledge, understanding, and, and what would be the representation to, to show me that they have that internal rotation. Okay. Um, but that's the kicker. Like, like that, that is the, the representation that you need to understand. How you get there is going to depend on the individual entirely. So again, most people that come into a, a fitness environment, they're, they're walking in the door, they expect to do stuff on their feet. And then, so what our job is, is to have a little bit of understanding exactly what their capabilities are, but that's going to be our exercise selection. So let's just say for the for the sake of argument that you do have somebody, you do the little step-up test and you go, you know what? They don't really have enough internal rotation to perform that activity without a compensation. You've just eliminated a lot of middle propulsive activities from your repertoire of exercises that you're going to choose because if they don't have that capability, that means they will have to use a compensation, which means they will have to create compression in certain places and expansion in certain places to move through space doesn't mean they can't do that, just means that we want to choose exercises that do not challenge that space because they cannot access it, okay? Yes, they can stand up, I understand that, but they're going to have to do that with some form of an anti-orientation of the pelvis, which is going to change an orientation of the spine, which again, under load becomes a little bit of a problem and it might not be recognized today, tomorrow, or next week, but over time, if they continue to use that strategy, it could become problematic. So again, tr trying to come up with a singular strategy to get somebody from the ground upwards 
um, is going to be dependent on the individual. There's there's variations in structure, there's variations in strategy that are going to influence someone's capability of managing gravity. We just have to protect them from themselves. Everybody has superpowers, but left alone, those superpowers will destroy you. I remember hearing you say something once, and it really stuck with me. And I probably say some variation of it once a week in the sense of if you see where someone's trying to find their internal rotation, you solve a lot of problems. And that is, that was like, that's, that summarizes a lot of it. Obviously it's not always that simple, but I was like, wow, that, that really is it, isn't it? If you try to find where that's coming from, then a lot of the times you're going to address a lot of issues. Yeah. And again, and I, I'm going to use the representation of, of somebody that's dealing maybe with a pain related issue under many circumstances. Those are, those are excessive um, compressive strategy. So they're, they're under compression for an extended period of time, or they can't select another movement option because they just don't have the capacity to do so. Most of those are going to be under high force. Well, internal rotation is where the highest force is applied. And so again, when we see compensations for a lack of internal rotation, which would be forced downward. So these are movements that would fall under the traditional um, extension-based activities, internal rotation-based activities, and adduction-based activities by traditional viewpoints. Um, anytime you would see a compensatory strategy for that, that is somebody that is compensating for a lack of internal rotation, and then explains a whole lot as to why people walk in with a little bit of a wonky knee, or they get a little bit, little pinchy in their hip, or they feel that pressure in their low back when they do their overhead press or something like that. So just a little bit of awareness goes a long way where you can protect your clients from themselves. And like I said, it just comes down to exercise selection, understanding where they have access to spaces and then don't take them where they don't have access yet. doesn't mean they can't develop it. doesn't mean they can't evolve it. It just means you got to protect the client from themselves. Yeah. I have to get ready to take the national exam. Uh -huh. So I just don't want to confuse myself with what they think ER is and what you're thinking. <laughs> so I was just trying to make sure I got those two clear so I wouldn't get it confused. Okay, ER of what? Um, we were talking about, initially you are talking about ER of the, I think, shoulder and... Um... Okay, you're talking about the scapular, right? Yeah. Okay. Traditional viewpoint. Okay. Take the position of the scapula as if you're, if you're standing up and then take, take a north-south axis straight through it. So a superior to inferior axis. Mm -hmm. And then pivot the scapula around that. Okay. Okay, by traditional representation, if I, if, I, if I turn the glenoid towards the front, okay, mm -hmm. that would be internal rotation of the scapula by traditional representation. If, if I turn the glenoid so it points out to the side, that would be a traditional mm -hmm. representation of ER. That's okay. an orientation into ER in my world. Okay, but by their okay. definitions, they're gonna look, they're gonna look at things in, in axes and planes, okay? rather than a, a total representation. Okay. okay. What I talk about, so we eliminate confusion. What I talk about are positions of expansion and compression. Mm -hmm. The expanded representation would be a breath in, an inhalation, which would move the scapula into a position of inhalation. External rotation is the position of inhalation. So when I talk about an externally rotated scapula, I'm talking about the inhaled representation, which is not what traditional measures would talk about. 
because I think that they're confusing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So when you got to take the test, you got to know the answers that they want. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So when I talk about <clears throat> when I talk about an ER orientation where you're actually turning the sockets, right? That's mm-hmm. what they would just call. They would just call that straight up external rotation, and I would call that an, an external rotation right. orientation because it is not the inhaled representation. Mm-hmm. It's just pointing out to a space. Okay. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Does that help you? Mm-hmm. When's your test? Yeah. I think it's going to be in July, so I have time. But you oh know, yeah, a little time then. Okay. Been a while. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> don't let me screw you up for the test okay because i do that to students all the no time. but i just it makes <laughs> your stuff makes more sense to me so i have so i can use it as oh a you're so sweet thank you to be able to like translate into their world so it helps me yeah it's 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 if, if you can speak both languages because you're going to have to right when you communicate yeah. with, with colleagues and stuff it's like if you can speak both languages i think it gives you a lot of power okay cool yeah so if you have questions about that, like, again, if there's more confusion that, that, that comes up, because I know you, you're, you've been on the last few calls and stuff, if there's more confusion, let me know, because I can, I can speak traditional. I choke on it a little bit, and I get a little sick to my stomach, but I can still do it. Okay. Okay, okay cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Zach Pendrick, I would not call that scapular retraction. Messed it up. Apologies. It's okay. Um, no, it's it's it, it. It just has to do with the direction of the, of the of the glenoid more than anything else, right? So it's more like orientation hour as opposed to the shoulder blade coming back. Towards yeah. The so so think about this for a sec, though. So if to orient the to orient the glenoid into an outward direction, which would be traditional ER, um, you have to compress the medial board of the scapula, don't you? That's the IR representation. So it's ER orientation with the IR superimposed on it. There you go. There's your compressive strategy for IR as you orient the, the, the glenoid into ER. Do you see it? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, they're always there, right? 